I must start today with a confession of sorts. This might come as a concern for some or disillusion others, but I must confess that I use Twitter. I read Twitter on most days, even multiple times during the day. So let the judging begin. I don't post often, but I do regularly use the app, and I'm not recommending necessarily for you, but I'm confessing my regular use of that tool. If you are tempted to open your phone at this point to look, to see what I have liked, what I have posted, what I retweet, please don't. There's plenty of time this afternoon if you are indeed curious. You should know also that I'm not a new Twitter user. I didn't open an account after Elon bought the company. I've actually been on Twitter for more than 12 years. In full disclosure, the reason that I am on Twitter in the first place is Pastor Brett's fault. He made me do it. During our pastor search process, I learned that he was on Twitter himself and was an avid poster, and I was concerned for him. I was concerned for the awkward positions he might put me in, and I was also concerned for the church, so I got an account, simply to follow him, to know whether I needed to defend him or rebuke him. It was purely a defensive response on my part. Fast forward today, Brett rarely posts anything anymore, but I still look at it daily. I use it mainly as an information gathering tool for sports and news and current events. But I also follow some accounts that help me think more deeply about Christ. And that causes my thoughts to focus on things that indeed do matter. About two weeks, two weeks ago, I came across such a post. It was a tweet from a professor at Southern Seminary. He, he tweeted this. The prayer closet is a greater battle for the Christian than the public square. The prayer closet is a greater battle for the Christian than the public square. I think that this professor is right. Indeed, everyone in this room can obviously see the battle that Christians face in the public square. If you are uncertain about that or somehow unwavering about that claim, certainly look at the election results from this past week. Never has it been more clear in my lifetime that Orthodox Christianity is losing the battle in the public square. More often than not, issues of life are lost at the ballot box. More, issues, more often than not, our country chooses to consistently ignore ways to promote human flourishing as Scripture would prescribe it. It's a battle in the public square, and we are losing it. Biblical values are losing in the public square. That's not news to anyone in this room, I don't suspect. Yet I still think that this professor is right. The battle in the public square pales in comparison to the battle that we must fight in our prayer closets. That fight is far more important. It's a far more important battle that has eternal consequences rather than temporal results of elections. Our fight in the prayer closet is far more important. It needs intentionality 
It needs assertiveness. It needs alertness. It's critical if we are going to wage this spiritual battle successfully. And it's with this perspective that the elders and the staff have preached this year on the topic of prayer. Prayer is a battle. Prayer is a battle for me as I trust it probably is a battle for you. We need to see this as it is, as a battle. And a battle that's far more important than who wins elections. We need to be equipped for this battle. We need to be encouraged, encouraging one another to take up arms and to engage together in this fight. The context of our passage today carries this militaristic tone with clear battle orders for believers to follow at the end of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Before we look at our passage, I think it's important for us to quickly see how Paul's entire letter fits together just briefly. Paul is writing from prison to the church at Ephesus. This church of Ephesus was dear to him. It served as kind of his, his hub or his center of evangelism for at least three years. And Paul's aim in this letter was to help his readers better understand the dimensions of God's eternal purposes and his grace. He wanted them to appreciate God's high goal for his church and for followers of Christ. And Paul spends the first three chapters urging believers to confidently know who they are in Christ. To know that they're spiritually blessed and to understand key doctrinal truths. And he wants them identifying with Christ as individuals, but also corporately together as the church, as the body of Christ. He wants them knowing and he wants them living the spiritual power of God's abundant grace, which it caused them to live distinctively according to these doctrinal truths. Believers should confidently live out who we are in Christ in a manner that accurately reflects the spiritual identity of our spiritual positions. Paul uses the last three chapters to help us see the the practical implications of these doctrinal truths that he lays out in the first three chapters. So if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to open up your Bible this morning to Ephesians. And before you go to chapter 6, start in chapter 1. Let's go to chapter 1 to begin there. I want you to look at this text with me as Paul draws our attention to this extravagant spiritual blessings that are available to God's, by God's grace in Jesus Christ to all believers. Look at verse 3 in chapter 1, it says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So who is blessed? Who is the us in this verse? Well, us are believers. First to the church in Ephesus, but these blessings extend to all believers. So what sort of blessings are promised to us? What kind of blessings are promised to believers? We're just going to quickly look and, and go through verse or chapter 1 very quickly, but I just want you to note the abundant and the lavish blessings described by Paul in just this one chapter. The first blessing we see is in verse 4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's a blessing. Also in, in verse 4, we can be made holy and blameless before our Father. In verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption 
through Jesus. In verse 7, we have redemption through Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Do you see that as a blessing in Christ? Another one in verse 9, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. In verse 11, in Jesus we have attained an inheritance. Also in verse 11, our Lord is working all things according to the counsel of his will. What a blessing that is. What a blessing it is in verses 13 and 14 to see that indeed we have been sealed and promised the Holy Spirit as believers. He who is the guarantor of our inheritance. Our salvation is safe. Our salvation is secure in Christ. Another blessing in verses 19 and 20, the same immeasurably great power that raised Jesus from the dead continues to work today. Friends, that is a blessing. Our king reigns far above all rule and authority and in power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in, in the one to come. In verses 22 and 23, our Savior serves as head over all things to the church, which is the body. I just highlight, I think, about a dozen blessings that we see in the first chapter of Ephesians that belong to believers. Scripture enumerates many other blessings bestowed on believers who repent of their sin, they trust in Christ. So, so how is a believer to respond to such undeserved blessings as an exalted child of God? This might seem like a strange question, but I think we need to ask it. What dangers, what dangers do such, do such blessings invite? What notions might creep into our minds as, as we consider our chosen position before the King of Kings as an exalted child of God? What ideas, ideas might be present in the minds of the theologically astute sitting in the pews today in this well-taught church? Maybe temptations of Self-satisfaction, maybe temptations of self-dependency, and might I dare suggest maybe the temptation even of spiritual arrogance might tempt some in this room. We need to rightly see ourselves as fertile ground for Satan to deceive us. Great targets for the evil one to take shots at our privileged position. Discreetly placing thoughts in our minds that somehow we earn this position as an exalted child of God. Or somehow we must continue to work to maintain this exalted status. Or a growing unwillingness on our part to let others know that we indeed ourselves are struggling with sin. Or thinking, oh, oh, I got this, I got this. I got this, as our self-dependence grows and our prayerlessness becomes normal. Moreover, this is an exceptionally unique threat, I think, for us, for this church, in our social context. There are lots of successful and self-sufficient, conservative-minded people in this room. Oh, there are lots of engaged parents in this room. There are lots of kids that are being taught truth in home that are well-behaved. There are lots of, moral, lots of moral young people in this room who are avoiding risky behaviors. Yes, that is true. Lots of people who have worked hard to achieve economic independence. There's nothing wrong with that. Our affluence and our accumulation of friends 
and trinkets that make our lives easier and more, more comfortable can foster a notion of satisfied achievement. It can foster a notion of self-assuredness. Each of these lifestyle markers can dull our need for Christ. We can easily drift into being self-satisfied in our comfortable homes, in our stable jobs, in our growing bank accounts. We can believe that our well-executed life strategy based on wise and measured decision-making is indeed paying off. Even living contentedly as if God is not really necessary. This is the fertile ground for the enemy. He's not necessarily shooting flaming arrows at us that we've got to dodge. No, he's, he's much more sly. He's much more crafty. He is tempting us to make ease and comfort our pursuit instead of godliness. With a happy wife, a happy home, a a full pantry, with our physical needs met, with Patrick Mahomes as our quarterback and Andy Reid as our head coach, do we still passionately long to know God more and to yearn for his help? Friends, friends, be aware of our unique temptations to believe the lies of Satan. And our natural bent towards self-dependency, our natural bent towards self-fulfillment, and our pursuit of temporal pleasures and comforts. With all these blessings from God, do I, do I really need him after all? Oh, I, we love the gifts of provision, don't we? We love the gifts. Yet, do we passionately pursue a relationship with the provider? Do we eagerly seek to submit and obey what the provider instructs us to do? Do we prioritize time to know him better and commune with him daily? Friends, we need to be aware of this vulnerability. Paul begins this letter to the Ephesians causing them to think of Christ in in glorious ways, raising their eyes towards heaven. And he closes the book with warnings and instructions that should drive us to our knees in prayer as we see our need to live in Christ more clearly. Our passage today is in Ephesians 6, verses 18 through 20. I'm still not ready to get there yet, though. We need to first look at the previous eight verses in Ephesians chapter 6. So let's look at and try to understand the immediate context to our passage today. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. Verse 14, 
Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up of the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is probably a familiar passage to most in this room. It may harken back memories to childhood Sunday school class, the flannel graph doing its best. For at least one in this room, probably others, you might remember donning the armor of God as a Halloween costume. But just quickly summarizing this this passage, Paul exhorts believers to be strong in the Lord and to put on the full armor so that they can stand against the inevitable attacks from Satan. Believers can stand firm because God has supplied defensive armor for us. So we can gird our midsection for battle with truth. We can protect our chest with the breastplate of righteousness. And we can prepare to stand firmly with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Paul then commands believers to grasp the last two pieces of armor. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. This paints a picture of a believer fully equipped with the blessings of Christ, ready to do battle and stand firm against the adversary. We need to note the command to stand firm is not limited only to these eight verses in 10 through 17, but it extends into our passage today. Paul is urging the church at Ephesus to be strong in the Lord, not strong in themselves, but strong in Christ. Believers are to live out their spiritually transformed reality and believers being strong in the Lord by putting on the full armor of God so that so that they can stand firm against Satan's plans to deceive and corrupt through his craftiness the call to stand firm is repeated for emphasis three times in these verses 11 through 14 God equips believers to stand firm against Satan's advances by putting on the full armor of God which is essentially living in Christ some questions to consider. If God provides believers the, army necess- the armor necessary to stand firm and to be strong in him, why do we struggle to stand firm against sinful temptations? Why do believers routinely struggle with sin? Why are we prone, so easily prone to believe error? Why are we tempted to grumble? Why are we tempted to gossip? Why are we tempted to be anxious? Why do we struggle with habitual sin? Sins that are repeated, sins that are defeated, and then we only go back to those sins again. Our gospel-informed minds know it's not because the enemy is too strong. Because Christ defeats Satan. Our Savior is lacking in no way. It's not that our armor is too porous or deficient somehow to withstand Satan's attacks. He gives us all that we need to stand firm. And nor should we believe that we are are too weak in Christ. Because scripture informs us that we possess resurrection power. I think a plain answer is that we simply lack the desire and the preparation 
to resist. We don't sufficiently hate our sin. We take the attacks of Satan too casually. We take the attacks of Satan too independently, too routinely. Yes, we say we want sin gone, but what does our willingness show? Are we, are we willing to coddle sin? Are we willing to allow it near us? Are we willing to rationalize it away? Well, this defies the notion that we indeed hate sin as God hates sin. And it's for this reason that Paul gives us this final instruction. We're not to add more armor, but rather to seek to stir within us the desire, the motivation, and the will to employ the Spirit-supplied tools at our disposal. In addition to putting on the armor of God, Paul instructs believers in verses 18 to 20 to pray, to pray and to be alert. In order for believers to stand firm in a battle against Satan's schemes, they must put on the armor of God and they must pray and persistently be alert. Believers must be actively engaged in this battle. So how is a church to stand firm? How, how are believers to stand firm? Well, the armor of God is necessary, but it is not sufficient in and by itself. We need to pray and we need to be alert. So what should mark these armor-supplementing prayers that round out our battle readiness? What should characterize the prayer life of a believer that enables them to be strong in the Lord, wearing the armor of God, making them capable to stand firm against the temptations of Satan? Today we're going to see six essential tactics. Six essential tactics that must mark our prayers so we can stand firm in the battle against Satan and be strong in the Lord. Six essential tactics. Number one, pray all kinds of prayers. Number one is pray all kinds of prayers. That is the first essential tactic that we see from our text today. It says, with all prayer and petition. That's the first five words of this verse. What on earth does that mean? It simply means that we are to pray a wide variety of prayers. There's not just one prayer that a, prayer, that a believer is to pray. The Lord's Prayer is, is excellent, but that's not the only prayer that we are to pray. God is not looking for rote memorization of a single prayer prayed over and over. What we see here in the text is actually the opposite of that notion, the opposite of that idea. Instead, think much more broadly. Think, think comprehensively of all types and all forms of appropriate prayer. Think private prayers, public prayers, family prayers, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of grief, prayers of praise, prayers of, prayers of confession, prayers of lament, prayers of, for holiness, prayers for provision, intercessory prayers, prayers for wisdom, prayers for missionaries, prayers from scripture, prayers with your hands raised high, prayers with your hands folded, prayers kneeling, prayers laying down, prayers standing up, quiet internal prayers, loud, joyous prayers of song, deliberate prayers, spontaneous prayers, short prayers, extended times of prayer, 
prayers for our enemies, prayers for our loved ones, prayers for strangers, evangelistic prayers, prayers of those, for those in authority, prayers at home, prayers at work, prayers in the church, prayers in the car. Do you get the picture? Does this paint the picture? There's not a single type of prayer that is right. There's not one place to pray. There's not a single right form of prayer. Neither in the Old Testament or the New Testament is a, it prescribes a single one right way to pray. Now instead, scriptural, Scripture models prayer for us and commands us to pray. We should feel great freedom in that. Our prayers should not be known for our restrictions, but instead our freedom. Our hands are not tied in any way. The opposite is true. You should feel the weight of the command to pray, regardless of the form. Before I go on, I had a question myself in the study, and I'm going to share it with you. I want to know, is there a distinction between prayer and petition? Is there a difference between those two words? Maybe you guys already know the answer to it. I didn't know the answer to it, so I wanted to find out. But, but is, is prayer one thing and petition something else? Well, one commentator noted the Greek word, Greek word translated prayer refers to general requests. While petition refers to those prayers that are more specific. So Paul commonly uses those two words together in his writing. But again, Paul's point here is not to make, I don't think, a distinction between a general prayer and a specific prayer. Instead, he's wanting us to think broadly about a variety of prayers. So some questions for you to consider. Would, would your prayer life be marked by variety? Variety in, in where you pray, variety in, in what you pray, variety in whom you pray for, variety in what scripture you might use to prompt prayer. Would your prayer life be noted for its, for its broadness or noted for its narrowness? Reflect on that. Maybe you need to add some variety to your prayer life. And if you do, let me recommend a, source, a resource for you. I have personally found wonderful and very helpful for my, my own prayer life. It's called uh, Praying the Bible by Don Whitney. Praying the Bible by Don Whitney. It'd be okay if you just want to go ahead and order that on Amazon. That would be an appropriate use of your phone right now if you wanted to. But stay off of Twitter. But again, I highly recommend this resource. It has helped my heart as I have been able to pray a greater variety of prayers. Again, Praying the Bible by Don Whitney. So to be prepared to stand firm, all believers need to have a variety of prayers. The second essential tactic that must mark our prayers so that we can stand firm in the battle against Satan and be strong in the Lord is that we must pray at all times. That we must pray at all times. So number two, pray at all times. And I know at face value this seems ridiculous. How can I pray at all times? Well, let me give you a quick, quick commercial. Come back here next week. Same place, same time. Pastor Brett will be standing here and he'll be preaching on 1 Thessalonians 5.17 where Paul says, pray without ceasing. 
I trust he will give a far greater and far more thorough treatment of this idea than I will this morning. But, but until then, let me give it a shot. I don't think that what Paul is suggesting here is that we're to walk around all day long vocalizing prayers out loud to God all day long. I don't think that's what Paul is instructing here. That seems to me rather hopeless and discouraging and even impossible. But I do think that Paul is suggesting something that is radically helpful to us. We know the cross of Christ has won us continual access to the throne of God. We know that to be true. We also know that Christ is standing next to that throne, interceding on our behalf. We also know our access to God is uninterruptible because of the work of Christ and his work alone. And I think Paul is urging us to have a mindset of continual fellowship, not a string of unbroken words. We're able to, and we should, interact with God at all times throughout the day. Paul is suggesting that we should pray at every opportunity. Prayer should not be simply reserved for first thing in the morning. It shouldn't be reserved just for meals. It shouldn't be reserved for just before you go to bed. We're in a no Old Testament um, or, or, or we're not under Old Testament law where we're obligated to pray at a specific time. And we're under the new covenant where Christ tells us in Luke 21, but keep on alert at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Furthermore, we see in Acts 2 where the early church was continually devoting themselves to prayer. And Paul regularly urged his readers to devote themselves to prayer. In Romans 12, 12, in Philippians 4, 6, in Colossians 4, 2, in addition to 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. The mandate to the church is unmistakable. But to pray at all times? During every waking moment? I don't think so. I think we should, however, be ready at all times to cry out to the Father in prayer. We're invited into an unbroken flow of dependence and fellowship with our creator God. What an invitation that is. He is our ever-present help. And I think this is how we're to best understand, pray at all times. We are to relentlessly set our minds on the things above and not on the things of earth. We should live in a persistent consciousness of God where everything we see and experience goes through a God-oriented filter. When we are tempted, we turn to God asking for help. When we see something beautiful or experience a kindness of God, we quickly offer praise to him in his name. When we are feeling anxious, we immediately cast all our burdens on him because he indeed cares for us. When we are unsure, we plead with him for wisdom and discernment. When we face evil, we pray for his justice to be done. When we encounter a lost person, we pray that God might use us as a tool in his redemptive hands. And when you find yourself in the midst of a hard conversation, you pray. Don't delay your prayers. That's exactly what the enemy would hope that you would do. Instead, pray as opportunities arise, not at predetermined times necessarily. Develop an open communion with God. That should be our aim. Our lives should reflect a continual dependence 
and communication with God. So to be prepared to stand firm, all believers need to have a variety in their prayers. Secondly, they should be ready to cry out to God at every moment. And third, they need to pray in the Spirit. Third, essential tactic that we must employ is we must pray in the Spirit. Again, notice that this instruction comes directly from the text. This isn't Rob's idea. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. So what does praying in the Spirit mean? Some of you, some of you dear friends, might be getting nervous about now. It looks like Rob has rope in his hands. Is he about to hang himself? Well, I hope not. We'll see. But when you hear pray in the Spirit... Some of your minds might be going towards charismatic or Pentecostal thoughts of praying in unintelligible ways. That is not what Paul intends here. To pray in the Spirit is to pray according to God's mind and according to God's will. This is not a mystical command reserved for a special few. No, this is a plain instruction. Praying in the Spirit is prayer that conforms to the will and to the purposes of the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit isn't a plea for speaking in tongues or some other ecstatic utterances, but instead it is a begging of the Spirit to stir up within us a greater zeal for God so that we are better able to stand firm against the enemy's advances. The Spirit helps our weaknesses and he intercedes on our behalf. Let's see that in Scripture. Turn back just a few pages to the left to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. It says this, In the same way the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit intercedes on behalf of the saints according to the will of God. It is right for us to pray in the Spirit and submit our will to him also. Our aim, our aim should be to align our minds, align our desires according to the will of God. If our, mind, if our minds are conformed to the mind of Christ... If we are submitting and obeying God's word and his revealed will, Satan has no chance in that battle. It's when we stray from scripture. It's when we enter those dangerous grounds. It's when we become the arbiter of what's true in here and what, oh, we're just going to choose to ignore. That is dangerous ground, friends. And that's when we open ourselves up to losing battles And falling into sin. The Spirit will never lead us to pray contrary to the will of God as revealed in the Word of God. You cannot pray in the Spirit, Lord, help me, bless me as I enter this marriage with this unbeliever. You can't do it. You can't pray, Lord, help me not get caught cheating on this test. Or, Lord, help me keep my private sin, my secret sin, secret. No. No, while I know that your heart might be genuine in those moments, 
they clearly and obviously violate God's revealed will according to Scripture. Instead, pray in the Spirit by praying Scripture to direct your pleas to God. Choose a prayer in the Bible to pray. Or pray through some of God's commandments in Scripture to pray for holiness. To pray in the Spirit, to pray according to God's revealed will in his word. Again, I'd recommend Don Whitney's book, Praying the Bible, as a wonderfully helpful resource. The fourth essential tactic that must mark our prayers so that we can stand firm in the battle against Satan and be strong in the Lord is we must pray with alertness. Number four, pray with alertness. Again, from the text. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance. Paul is saying, stand firm against the enemy by being alert. This word means to be awake, be vigilant, think attentive. In a military sense, it's a, it's a sentry on duty to watch for incoming threats. He's telling the church, be on alert. Church, be on alert for threats that come from the enemy. It's probably not a new, new concept to you in the room, but alertness and prayer are often connected elsewhere in Scripture. One of those times is in Matthew 26, just after the Last Supper. Jesus and his disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus withdrew from the disciples to pray. As you probably remember, when Jesus came back, the men were not alert. (laughs) They were not attentive. They were not watching for incoming threats. They were asleep. In verse 41, Jesus says, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus was imploring the men, keep watch, keep alert, fulfill your duty, and at all times be praying. And our call is not dissimilar. We are to be alert. We are to be be ready to pray at a moment's notice. We need to be engaged and alert, watching in the body, discerning who is being attacked by the enemy, who is not showing up, who is isolating themselves, who is is prone to giving vague and superficial responses in discipling relationships, who is resistant to engage in significant relationships with the body, who is beginning to grumble, who is beginning to voice dissatisfaction, where is their marital discord, who is seemingly anxious or worrying. These are indications of the evil one at work. Be alert, body. Be alert so you can notice an attack and get involved. Begin praying. Engage the threat. Don't ignore it. This alertness to what is going on in the body is an ongoing task. It's not something you do on Monday and will be done by Tuesday. No, this is a responsibility of all the members to persevere in the care of the body. This is not a delegated task to growth group leaders or equipping class teachers or to deacons. It's not delegated to elders or to staff. This is body work. This is all of us working together. This is a call for all of us to be alert. All of us are called to persevere in the task 
of being on guard for attacks from Satan within the body. More specifically, though, we are to persevere in prayer. We are to persevere in prayer. The verb form for this Greek word translated perseverance is often linked with prayer. It means to devote yourself constantly to it. You don't give up when you don't see immediate results. You wait on the Lord as we are instructed in Psalm 27 and 14. Be alert for the threats and then persevere in prayer until that threat is eliminated. We must prepare to persevere over a long period of time. We cannot give up. We cannot be weak. We must persevere. So what is the possible content of of these persevering prayers offered by alert believers? Well, I think they're pretty simple. Pray for victory over tempting sin. Pray for forgiveness of sins that are already committed. Pray for unbelievers to come to saving faith in Christ. Pray for folks who would grow in their love for the bride of Christ and seek to increase their commitment to the local church reflected in how they prioritize their time, their talent, and their treasures. Pray for people to grow in dependence upon God. Pray for people to hate their sin more. Pray that their zeal for his people and their desire to know him more intimately would flourish. And pray that husbands would love their wives and lead their family as scripture outlines. Pray that people would see their pride as their greatest enemy and humility as their greatest friend. I've lost that battle, friends. (laughs) Mark told me this will work, so we're going to go with that. To be prepared to stand firm, all believers need to have a variety in their prayers ready to cry out to God in prayer at every opportunity. Pray in the Spirit. Pray with alertness and perseverance. And fifth, pray for all the saints. Our fifth essential tactic is to pray for all the saints. Again, we see this from the text. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert. With all perseverance, and petition for all the saints. So who are we to pray for? Sam kind of teed this up for us at mid-service. Who are the saints? Well, look around this room. Look at your membership directory. Saints are professing believers in Christ. So all members of this church have made that profession. We are the saints. We are the saints. Anyone who proclaims Christ, anyone who is a believer, we indeed are the saints. There we're in scripture, we're instructed to pray, or elsewhere in scripture, we are prayed, we are commanded to pray for unbelievers. We're commanded to pray for government leaders and to pray for those in authority over us. But here in this text, the instruction is to pray for all the saints. Why do you think that is? Why is that here? Why is Paul suggesting that we pray for all the saints? I think it's because in the context of this passage, only believers are engaged in this spiritual battle for which we have the armor of God. 
Paul is calling us to pray for fellow believers. Fellow believers who are in the same fight as we are. We have a mutual enemy. Paul has emphasized throughout the book of Ephesians, we are one body in Christ. If one member hurts, the whole body hurts. So it makes perfect sense that Paul calls us to pray for all of the saints. And let me be clear, it's not wrong to pray for yourself, nor is it wrong to pray for physical matters. But we need to see here that Paul's emphasis here, I think, is clear. Our prayers should reflect a greater concern for others than ourselves. And our greater concern should be over spiritual matters as opposed to physical ones. The greatest good that we can do for a believer is to pray for their spiritual needs. Do you believe that? Do you, do you believe that? Does your prayer life this past week give evidence to that belief? When you pray in growth groups, do you, do you ask others to primarily pray for your spiritual needs as opposed to your physical needs? Look, I know we can all seek to grow in this regard in terms of praying for others more and praying for spiritual matters more often. That's something we can all grow in. Before moving to our our last point, let me draw your attention to something that ties these first five points together. And some of you may have already noticed Paul's use of the word all. He uses the word all four times in this single verse. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times, be on alert with all perseverance, petition for all the saints. So you think Paul had a point to make as he emphasized the use all four times in the span of one verse and 30 words? I think so. I think his repetitious use of all is Paul's way of emphasizing his fervency and the urgency of the church the whole church, the whole be wholeheartedly persistent in our prayers. It highlights his passion, his thoroughness, and his intensity towards prayer. As believers take up the armor of God, including the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, they should pray at every opportunity through every prayer and petition for all persistence and petition for all the saints. It is evident that Paul sees prayer as vital, and we should share his perspective. Attention to prayer is necessary. It is vital. It is not optional. It's not for those other people. It is for all of us. It is critical to our spiritual well-being, and it is critical for the spiritual well-being of the church. Feel the weight of that, friends. Let's now look at the final essential tactic that must mark our prayers so we can withstand firm in the battle against Satan and be strong in the Lord. Number six is pray for gospel outcomes. Pray for gospel outcomes. And we'll see this in verses 19 to 20. Verse 19 says, And pray on my behalf that utterances may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. 
Paul concludes this section with an un or with a remarkably non-rob manner. And what do I mean by this? Well, consider the situation that Paul was in. When he was writing this letter, he was in jail. His liberty had been unfairly infringed upon. He was undoubtedly suffering while incarceration. If I would have been in Paul's position, I too probably would have asked you to pray for me. I would have reached out to the saints, they pray for me. But honestly, that's probably where the similarities end. My petitions would have been different than Paul's. I would have been asking for the saints to pray for my release. I would have been asking for the saints to pray for better conditions, a better bed, a better pillow, for the shackles to hurt less. I would have been asking you to pray for the guards to treat me better, to give me a greater volume of food, probably, and certainly a greater variety of food. Maybe even to give me my phone back so I can look at Twitter, I don't know. But note, note what Paul's requests were. Very un like He didn't ask for the saints to pray for his physical needs that he most assuredly had. No, he sought prayer for kingdom outcomes. He sought prayer for his faithfulness. He sought prayer for boldness. He sought prayer for when Satan tempted him to be quiet, he would instead boldly proclaim the gospel truth. He knew where he was vulnerable, and he sought prayer in those ways. Paul was not a naturally gifted or eloquent speaker. He knew Satan would attack his weaknesses. And despite his temporal weaknesses, Paul was a great target for Satan. Just consider how God had used Paul in such mighty ways for gospel advancement. Paul knew he couldn't depend, be self-dependent under attack. He needed to pray and ask others to pray for him too. He knew that gospel fruit was grounded in God, not his self-sufficiency, not his eloquence, not his skill. While being a spiritual leader, Paul remained genuinely poor in spirit as a terrific model of a humble saint and a leader for us to look at. So even when Paul was requesting prayer for himself, his purposes and his motivations were selfless. They were selfless. His aim was to further the gospel, encourage other believers, and to glorify his Lord. Paul's example here teaches us that a primary focus in prayer should be furthering the kingdom of God, not making ourselves more comfortable. So make Paul's passion your passion. To pray that you will be used to proclaim the gospel to the lost with clarity and with boldness. Before I conclude, let me speak to the folks in this room who are not believers, who do not yet have access to the armor of God, nor access to the strength of Christ. I don't know who you are, but I'm glad you're here. (laughs) I'm glad you're here. And I thank you for patiently listening. Scripture would suggest that your presence here is not happenstance, but that God wanted you to hear this message for some reason. 
recognize these are not ideas. I'm not the authority. These are not my ideas. I am not the authority. God's word is the authority. Recognize that. And to the best of my ability, I've tried to reflect that truth today. But if you have questions about what you have heard, please discuss them with the person who brought you. And if, you, if you're in this room and you don't know anyone else, but you're looking at me for an hour, I'll be outside those doors and would love to meet you when we finish. The essential tactics of prayer assume belief. Just as Paul's original words were directed toward believers at the church of Ephesus, so has the content of this sermon been directed toward believers. So believers in this room, are you convinced? Are you convinced that the prayer closet is a greater battle for the Christian than the public square? Paul has given us clear instructions. Pray like this. Be like this. Be who you are. New creations in Christ. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in heaven. Saved by Christ. Made new in Christ. Empowered by the Spirit. We can battle against sin and self. We are not helpless. Believers, we are not powerless in this fight. We can win the battle against our sins of lust. We can win the battle against our sins of weakness, our sins of procrastination, our sins of ambition, our sins of passivity. We can win these battles. These battles are not hopeless if you are a believer in Christ. All can be defeated. It's not easy. Perseverance is required. Paul uses military language here for a reason. It is a battle. We can't defeat this enemy independently. We can't do this on our own. We need Christ. We need his strength. We need the church and we need each other. There will be setbacks along the road to victory. But friends, if you are a believer You have access to the single greatest military asset at our disposal. We have Christ. We have hope. We have the tools that we need. We can stand firm in the Lord and defeat the compulsions to sin because of the gospel. Now live in that reality. Live in that reality. Stand firm in the strength of the Lord. Put on the full armor of God. Pray like Paul instructs. Be on alert for Satan's crafty attacks. Stand firm and win the battle and the strength of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a joy to be a believer, to recognize the blessings that you bestow upon us. But Father, I do pray that we would feel the weight of our vulnerability. I pray, Father, that we would see in our own lives areas of our weakness and where we are slipping towards prayerlessness or where we're slipping towards self-assuredness or self-independence. Help us to see that, Lord. And I pray, too, that you would help 
others see it in us. Not in a vicious way, Lord. Not in a, in a way that's hurtful, but in a way that is restorative. A way that is helpful. A way, as you have outlined it here in scripture for us, to love and serve those within the body. I ask, Lord, that you would help our, our spiritual awareness. May we be alert. May we be faithful. And may we be known as a church, as a praying church. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.